Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Thanks for your support on Patreon, Philip Rice. Philip Rice was present during the Battle of the River Lech and claimed to have fired the cannonball the doomed Count Tilly. We'll never know the truth for sure, but good effort, Philip. This, of course, is all a lie, but if you would like me to lie about you, you know where to go. Patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 56 of the Thirty Years' War. So last time we watched the triumphant scene of Breitenfeld play out, as the Swedish army, led by its conquering King Gustavus Adolphus, could have swathed through Count Tilly's formerly unbeaten force, with dramatic and immediate consequences for all involved. Breitenfeld was a dramatic turnaround, this much is true, but for Gustavus, it was only the beginning. Winning victory on the battlefield was one thing, but cementing that triumph, placing his personal stamp over Germany, a stamp which would stand the test of time, was quite another. To do this, as 1631 became 1632, Gustavus would have to stand up to another fearsome leader of the Emperor's men, Albrecht von Wallenstein. Wallenstein had been recalled to lead by his Emperor, but after a year of watching his personal fortunes plummet, as his estates and land holdings were raided or returned to their former owners, Wallenstein would probably have felt compelled to intervene anyway. Banking on the experience of Tilly to save his livelihood had not worked out. In fact, a disaster had been visited upon the imperial cause instead. Now, as the men who had once so gleefully undermined him in summer 1630 turned out to offer him pleas and no end of praise for his past accomplishments, Wallenstein, a man who, let's not forget, was in constant pain, did what he always did and returned to the field to begin raising an army in the spring of 1632. As Wallenstein marched, Gustavus did not sit still either, for his triumphs and subsequent conquests had created ripples which reached all the way across Germany. Without any further ado, it's time we examined those ripples in this very chunky episode, so I will now take you all to early 1632. In the opening weeks of 1632, a forlorn figure made his way ponderously across terrible roads following the flow of several major rivers before arriving in the court of the King of Sweden. As he arrived, this exile, former king and dispossessed elector, must have marvelled at his transformed fortunes. Indeed, it was to be marvelled that after a decade in fierce opposition to the emperor, Frederick V, the elector palatine and former king of Bohemia, 
was finally in the winner's circle. By late February 1632, Gustavus had reconquered much of the lower Palatinate, leaving only a couple of fortresses held by sickly Spanish soldiers out of reach. Frederick met the Swedish king for the first time at Mainz shortly after Gustavus's forces had taken the strategically important Palatine town of Bad Kreuznach. The town had the distinction of passing into new owners seven times during the entirety of the conflict, and its population would dwindle from 8,000 to 3,500 souls by the war's end. While Bad Kreuznach's suffering was not unique, German contemporaries evidently empathised with the plight of its inhabitants. The phrase, he was born at Kreuznach, became a byword for someone who had to struggle with severe hardship. Frederick certainly knew of hardship, but he surely hoped that his plight, like that of Bad Kreuznach, was at an end. Unfortunately, he would be wrong on both counts. Initially, the two men got on well together, though, with Gustavus even scolding one of his subordinates for failing to address Frederick as the legitimate king of Bohemia. The struggle for the Bohemian crown and the defenestration of Prague which preceded it must have seemed like a lifetime ago to the Swedish conqueror and his party of exiles, rebels and opportunists, but despite Frederick's total dependence upon him, Gustavus was well aware of Frederick's usefulness to his campaign. And Gustavus's reasoning was simple and captured by a contemporary. Always it is good the two kings should be together, for as Bohemia is protected by Sweden, so Sweden is justified by Bohemia. In 1629, when he had listed the caste of German princes who would have to be restored to satisfy the status quo antebellum, Gustavus had placed the Winter King at the top of the list. Unless the Palatine problem was solved, Gustavus understood, there could be no opportunity for a lasting peace in Germany. This Palatine problem revolved around several issues. First, the occupation of its major towns and fortresses by Spanish troops, which the strategic situation was actually helping to solve by itself. Second, though, and more troublingly, there was the problem of Bavaria, with Maximilian being granted the title of elector and clearly being unwilling to revert to his old position of a mere duke. So it was evident that the two Wittelsbach cousins would have to find some form of compromise. Thus, the presence of Frederick II's nemesis in his camp legitimised Gustavus's campaign. But Frederick also boasted several important connections with the English and Dutch that the Swedish king was very eager to make the most of too. And as expected, Gustavus wanted money and military contribution from the British, which was, after all, ruled by Frederick's brother-in-law, the very ill-fated King Charles. Gustavus's demands were not politically opportunistic, though. In fact, they were motivated by sound military logic. There was little use in clearing the enemy from the Palatinate and placing Frederick back in Heidelberg as though nothing had happened. This would have made Frederick a constant burden on Swedish resources. Frederick lacked any means to defend himself, and his enemies in Bavaria were still in the field. It would therefore be necessary to deal with these Bavarian enemies and to defeat Count Tilly once and for all first. But as Cardinal Richelieu would have noted, Sweden could not play a role in attacking Bavarian forces due to the neutrality agreement which Sweden and Bavaria were supposed to enjoy, at least according to the secret treaty of Fontainebleau. To Gustavus, and evidently also to Maximilian of Bavaria, that treaty of Fontainebleau had been little more than a piece of paper. As John Matusiak noted in his book Europe in Flames, 
The events of the last 12 months had effectively disposed of any such fantasies after Bavarian money, Bavarian troops and Bavaria's general had helped fight and lose the Battle of Breitenfeld. By March 1632, indeed, all thought of Bavarian neutrality was, in Axel Oxenstierna's words, sunk after an incriminating letter from Maximilian to the Emperor was successfully intercepted. With the confrontation of Bavarian forces and Count Tilly in mind, Gustavus led his forces up the river Mine and towards an encounter with Maximilian. Frederick V accompanied him, eager, no doubt, to watch his Bavarian cousin gain some measure of comeuppance. In fact, Gustavus had been moved to act as one of his own subordinates, Gustav Horn, had been outmaneuvered by Tilly's force of 22,000 at Bamberg on the 9th of March 1632. After a short encounter, Horn had withdrawn from the town, and while Tilly had not been strong enough to pursue, the defeat had shown Gustavus and other Germans that the Bavarians and Tilly were not finished yet. If Gustavus wanted to maintain his momentum, he would have to demonstrate that he had not lost a step either, and that he could always be depended on to lead his men to victory. And the Bavarians were certainly aware that the Swedish king was on his way. Accompanied by Maximilian, Tilly attempted to anticipate where Gustavus would move next. Since he wished to invade Bavaria, Gustavus would have to contend with the river Danube, which divided that electorate, and which would force him to choose between the northern or southern side. In the event, Gustavus chose to invade the southern part of Bavaria, because this contained Munich, Maximilian's capital, and the greatest booty would surely be found there. To reach Munich, though, Gustavus would have to contend with a fearsome natural barrier, the River Lech. On the 14th of April 1632, Gustavus finally reached the River Lech and drew his men up opposite Tilly's camp on the far side of the riverbank. The Lech presented a formidable obstacle as melted snows and spring rains had caused it to swell to four metres deep in places. Unless he found a place to ford the river then, there was no way the Swedish king would be able to get his men across. It was necessary to begin scouting up and down the river for such an opportunity, and Gustavus ensured his cannons kept up a heavy rate of fire just opposite Tilly's camp, as he did so. After a while, two potential opportunities were discovered, and Gustavus hatched an ingenious plan. He made very public use of one river crossing, down the Lech, which compelled Tilly to send men down to meet him, but just then, his fast-moving cavalry a kilometre up the river splashed across a hidden ford, and Tilly's detachment was suddenly trapped. Tilly wasted little time deciding what to do next. His 20,000 or so men were outnumbered and outgunned by Gustavus's 37,000 soldiers, and after a brief encounter, Tilly ordered the retreat. Or at least, Tilly would have ordered it, had he not been struck with a cannonball in the thigh. Nasty and slipped into unconsciousness shortly thereafter. Command had then passed to Maximilian, and the Bavarian elector wasted no time ordering the retreat to Regensburg. Appreciating that he could not possibly defend Munich, and that Regensburg held special significance as the communications hub for imperial and Bavarian soldiers, Maximilian had effectively sacrificed Munich to the invaders. Upon crossing at the Lech, with his nemesis in Tilly defeated, 1,000 prisoners captured, and the Bavarian Chancellery on the run. Gustavus took the opportunity to enter Munich in triumph on the 17th of May, 1632. Among other activities in that city, Gustavus played tennis with Frederick V in Maximilian's personal tennis court, 
and he exhumed 119 of the cannons which the Bohemians had lost at the Battle of White Mountain, and which Maximilian had symbolically buried. Maximilian had not left his beloved Bavaria wholly defenceless though, and as he marched in the retreat from the Lech, he filled the fortresses of Ingolstadt and Regensburg with more men, diluting his own personal defences, but guaranteeing that Bavarian resistance would be kept alive. And in this mission, the Bavarian peasantry did a great deal of heavy lifting themselves, erupting in revolt for the duration of the Swedish occupation, engaging in tit-for-tat atrocities with the invaders, and sharpening the religious differences between the two sides. A brief appearance by Gustavus in Munich's cathedral, where he attended a Catholic mass, did nothing to ease these differences. We imagine that revenge would have tasted very sweet indeed to Frederick, who finally got even with his cousin for deposing him and seizing his lands and titles a decade before. It was a dramatic turnaround to go from a penniless refugee to playing tennis on the personal tennis court of one's greatest foe. However, while the triumphal procession into Munich was largely symbolic and spoke to the extent to which the fortunes of war had changed, Frederick's ordeal was far from over. Though he marvelled at Gustavus's energy and successes, noting that he would not think of resting while he was in the field, Frederick was no closer to having a deal for his restoration to the ruined Palatinate hammered out. Indeed, he was beginning to harbour feelings of apprehension towards Gustavus, which would only intensify as time went on. The king continues to show me plentiful affection. I am negotiating with him. I want to hope that all will go well, he wrote in a letter to his wife Elizabeth in March. Shortly after writing this letter, and shortly before he and Gustavus had moved out, Gustavus's first offer was communicated to Frederick. It was, according to Frederick, very high, in other words, demanding, but contained no impossible requests. Gustavus wanted freedom of worship for Lutherans in Frederick's Calvinist Palatinate, he wanted the right to occupy all Palatine fortresses as long as the war lasted, and he wanted Frederick to acknowledge Gustavus's direction of the war so that Frederick should not depend upon any other king, prince, body or state, but only on his majesty of Sweden. As the historian Michael Roberts has noted in his extensive biographies of Gustavus, the Swedish king had no intention of transforming Frederick into a mere vassal of Sweden. What Gustavus wanted was for Frederick to support him during the war and afterwards, and upon these early impressions of his demands, Frederick did not expect the negotiations with Gustavus to be concluded any time soon writing to his wife that the talks with the King of Sweden will be stretched out endlessly. There was some concern over Gustavus's demands for religious toleration. Did these not conflict with the principle of whose rule his religion, as laid down in the 1555 Augsburg settlement? One gets the feeling that Gustavus's demands for toleration, even while they mostly gelled with Frederick's natural inclinations anyway, rubbed the Elector Palatine the wrong way, and this friction continued through the year. At this point, Frederick was hopeful that the negotiations would bear fruit, and he was content to travel with Gustavus towards the aforementioned encounter with Tilly at the River Lech, and then on to Munich. True to form, Gustavus also wrested more than 160,000 talers from the residents of Munich during his 10-day stay. And by the time he had taken in the sights of that city, his old foe from Breitenfeld, Count Tilly, succumbed to the wounds he suffered at the Lech. In a stroke, after a glittering career and countless triumphs, one of the greatest commanders of the Habsburg side 
was gone. Gustavus could not afford to rest on his laurels, as the removal of one agent of the emperor merely paved a way forward for another. Before the year was out, he would have to confront Wallenstein, who had worked his way through Bohemia, ejected the unreliable Saxons from Prague, and had rebuilt an army of more than 60,000 men. Wallenstein had been very busy in early 1632, pushing back John George of Saxony's reeling army, and after its poor behaviour and penchant for plunder, the Bohemians were not likely to mourn them all that much. Unwilling to strike the killer blow, as his aim was to detach John George from Gustavus's side rather than destroy him, Wallenstein placed men on the borders with Saxony and Bohemia in early May, while he moved off to confront the Swedish king. While Gustavus's efforts to turn back the clock in Bohemia had failed, his impact upon the empire, upon the strategic balance in the Rhineland, and even upon the war between the Spanish and Dutch was profound. Indeed, Gustavus's moves along the Rhine in autumn 1631 compelled several German potentates there to seek French protection, and one of these, the Archbishop of Trier, successfully did so. As a knock-on effect of Gustavus's Rhineland campaigns and the Dutch successes in the Spanish Netherlands, Madrid had been forced to redirect troops out of Alsace, thus placing that duchy in danger as well. Rather than allow such a strategically important territory to fall into Swedish hands, Richelieu advocated an invasion of Lorraine in December 1631, which effectively handed the territory to France in the Peace of Vic the following January. Now that their positions along the Rhine had been seriously compromised, and their supply route to the Spanish Netherlands cut off by the presence of so many Protestant soldiers, Spain's strategic situation had gone from advantageous in early 1630 to ruinous by 1632, with the death of their old policy of simultaneously supplying the Spanish Netherlands and surrounding France along the Rhine, the Spanish campaigns against the Dutch died shortly thereafter. The interconnected nature of Habsburg theatres of war was on full display once more, and after some secret negotiations, some distinguished citizens from Brussels actually made their way to The Hague with a stunning offer. In return for land, money, protection and titles, it was said, many in the Spanish Netherlands would be willing to throw off the Spanish yoke altogether and unite with their Dutch neighbours. Following some talks in this direction, in late May 1632, the Dutch States-General sent a letter to the Spanish Netherlands, urging them to follow the praiseworthy example of their forefathers in liberating themselves from the heavy and intolerable yoke of the Spaniards and their adherents, and of their own free will to join themselves unto these united provinces, to which end we offer them our strong and effectual assistance by the army which we have put into the field under the wise and courageous and willful, prudent leadership of His Excellency, the Lord Frederick Henry, Prince of Orange. And we herewith, religiously and irrevocably, promise unto the aforesaid provinces that we will conserve and maintain the towns and members of the same, likewise their inhabitants, as well, spiritual and secular, of whatever state, quality and condition they may be, in their privileges, rights and liberties, as well as the public exercise of the Roman Catholic religion, desiring for ourselves to live, deal and converse with the same as good friends, neighbours and allies. This offer, recorded in Peter Gale's History of the Dutch-Speaking Peoples, brilliant book if you want to check it out, was absolutely stunning for the time. It was a guarantee of religious freedom to the citizens of the Spanish Netherlands in return for their incorporation into the Dutch Republic, 
what a coup it would be if the Brussels administration could be forced to agree. With Spanish aid far away, and the unpopularity of the war mounting within Brussels and without, there were even rumours that cries of long live the Prince of Orange had been heard in Brussels streets. To maintain the pressure, Frederick Henry, as the military and political leader of the Dutch Republic, determined to lead a large armed host against Maastricht. By summer 1632, Maastricht represented a critical hub whereby the Habsburgs' two wars in the Netherlands and the Empire would be protected. Capture Maastricht and the Emperor and the King of Spain would be cut off from one another like never before. Thus it is not surprising, though still striking, that in the absence of a Spanish relief force, an imperial army under the command of Pappenheim made its way to relieve Maastricht. Once Frederick Henry placed it under siege on the 10th of June, 1632. Considering the Emperor's failure to wrest any declaration of war on the Dutch from the German princes in the 1632 Regensburg meeting, this appeared like a significant step towards a policy which the Emperor's allies had not countenanced. As it happened though, the movement of armies of different nationalities and the undeclared wars which went with them had become a feature of the interconnected conflicts raging across the continent by this point. It was through such undeclared war, after all, that France and Spain had been able to tear lumps out of each other in North Italy, and that the Turks had sent their vassals against the Holy Roman Emperor, and that Wallenstein had previously sent his men against the King of Sweden during Gustavus's Polish Wars, and indeed as Gustavus himself had done when sending Swedish soldiers to relieve Stralsund. Occasionally, these undeclared wars could spark a conflagration, but only when at least one side strongly wished it to, as Gustavus did when he alluded to Wallenstein's intervention in Sweden's wars in the late 1620s as a casus belli for him. As the Habsburgs had come to learn by 1632, it all depended on the unfortunate power on the other end of this suspicious military aid, and the Dutch treated the Habsburgs as hostile in both camps, just as the Spanish treated the Swedes as such when their armies appeared outside of their Rhineland garrisons. On this occasion, though, Habsburg efforts to swap their armies between unrelated fronts did not work, as the intervention was unsuccessful and Maastricht did fall on the 22nd of August. Following Sir Bosch, noted the historian Peter Gale, here was another conquest to impress all of Europe, the fame of the cautious but persevering Frederick Henry bade fair to rival that of the dashing Gustavus Adolphus. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. 
Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In the event, it was while Frederick Henry besieged Maastricht that the native Spanish government regained control of the situation in Brussels. Many of the more loyal citizens in the Spanish Netherlands were unwilling to act without the support of France, and this French support failed to materialise. But the series of events which led some to contemplate such extreme action were not easily forgotten. In particular, Dutch offers to tolerate Catholicism made a deep impression and a rebellious enthusiasm for the dynamic Prince of Orange was hard to suppress. In particular, as Peter Gale noted, Dutch offers to tolerate Catholicism made a deep impression and a rebellious enthusiasm for the dynamic Prince of Orange was hard to suppress. Considering this, the governess of the Spanish Netherlands, who happened to be the aunt of King Philip IV of Spain, reacted swiftly. She welcomed back discontented loyalists to Brussels by flattery, reminding them that they should disdain a simple state's government where a loutish and ill-mannered burgomaster can lay down the law. When that did not go all the way to appeasing the more recalcitrant Spanish Netherlands nobles, the decision was made to convene the State's General Assembly in Brussels on the 9th of September 1632. This assembly in Brussels had not met in over 30 years, and its major goal from the beginning was to arrive at suitable peace terms with the Dutch. Since they would not join them and could not beat them, it remained to end the war with them, which had dragged on now for nearly 70 years. As before, Madrid was unwilling to allow the citizens of the Spanish Netherlands to conduct peace negotiations with plenipotentiary powers, and Madrid demanded a final say in any probing discussions with the Dutch. The troubles of Spain's European patrimony were not wholly solved, though, and there remained a latent school of thought which advocated independence altogether from Spain for the Spanish Netherlands rather than a union with the Dutch. Still, the differences of opinion between the relevant parties in Brussels meant that no group was large enough to launch any kind of coup against the lawful Habsburg government. So while the immediate danger had passed, a clear message of the earnest desire which the Spanish Netherlanders had for peace had been sent. We're going to continue the story of the many ripples caused by Gustavus Adolphus's campaigns in Germany in just a bit, history friends. But before we do, I wanted to let you know, or remind you, or keep droning on about, <laughs> take your pick, that this podcast is brought to you by When Diplomacy Fails on Patreon. If you want some extra content, because we're only really doing bi-weekly with some secret special episodes released intermittently too, if you want to compensate for this lower amount of content while I do my PhD, then Patreon is the best place to go. Not only will you be getting extra content, such as Poland is not yet lost from 1700 to 1750, or if you want to know about the Suez Crisis in 1956, which until Brexit, 60 years later, was in my view one of the worst decisions the British ever made, then Patreon is the best place to go. You will be getting extra content and you'll also be helping to fund my PhD, which 
thank God, is nearly over. I just handed in a chapter there, and I'm going probably to release it as a few episodes for patrons too. So if you want to keep up with that, and if you want to continue your support of my journey to add three more letters to my name, then Patreon is the best place to go. I've been completely bowled over by your guys' support before, and I know I say it a lot, but I genuinely mean it. Without Patreon, without your guys' support, none of this would be possible. I definitely wouldn't be able to justify doing this during PhD time. And as it is, I'm already struggling trying to balance things, but I always do try and prioritize you guys, because without you, there would be no, hopefully future, Dr. Zach Twomley. So that's all I have to say on the matter. Link in the description below. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. In such a way did the ripples caused by Gustavus's invasion of Germany create great headaches and crises for the Spanish. By summer 1632, Madrid had virtually lost all of its holdings along the Rhine and was no longer able to threaten France on the French eastern border for the first time in generations. Gustavus's rampage through Germany had been tremendously significant, but had it been wholly successful? On the contrary, according to Peter H. Wilson, Gustavus was a victim of his own success during autumn 1631. The speed and scale of the imperial collapse in Germany along the Rhine, in Bavaria and in Bohemia, with the initial triumph at Breitenfeld, had the effect of opening up a vacuum, sucking the Swedes and their new allies in all directions, further regionalising the war and hindering coordination. Just as the Imperials collapsed too fast, so too did Gustavus expand too fast, leaving many supposedly conquered areas, in fact still populated by formidable fortresses with strong garrisons. Meanwhile, in places where no Imperial soldiery existed, the Swedes didn't exactly ingratiate themselves upon the citizens of the Rhine, in Bavaria or even in Bohemia, by this point in the conflict, it wasn't difficult to find individuals in Gustavus's own army who had been spurned by its initial salvos, or who had lost everything to a Catholic neighbour or rival and now thirsted for revenge. The church lands, Wilson recorded, were treated as conquests, adding that supply arrangements were no more efficient than those of the Imperial and League armies, and Gustavus's famous disciplinary code was ignored by his own officers, who took what they wanted. Bad treatment extended to allies. Gustavus made fine speeches on his entry into the important Protestant city of Nuremberg on the 31st of March 1632, but immediately obliged it to surrender its war material from its arsenal and allow its infantry regiment to be incorporated in his own army. Gustavus also granted titles and land to ambitious subordinates and spurned the idea of restoring or respecting the former inhabitants. He was, according to Geoffrey Parker, a force no one could control, and after Breitenfeld, a new harshness of speech and rudeness of manner became apparent. The Swedish king no longer attempted to disguise his contempt for his German allies, his indifference to the wishes of his foreign supporters, his resentment of any interference with his plans. Having achieved his victories in 1631 almost without help, pride seems to have gotten the better of him in 1632. Notwithstanding Gustavus's increasing self-confidence, even had the Swedish king boasted the most magnanimous disposition Europe had ever seen, the terrible outcome of the war would have been the same. The invasion of Bavaria blundered some of Gustavus's momentum, especially as his men stayed behind to plunder it, as May became June and the countryside was set alight. 
Your grace would no longer recognise poor Bavaria, Maximilian exclaimed to his brother. Such cruelty has been unheard of in this war. Maximilian might well have added that his brother would no longer recognise the war, for it had burst violently out of its initial confines as a bohemian revolt by the summer of 1632. By then, both Gustavus and Wallenstein had worked their cruel magic to recruit unsustainable levels of men, with some estimates as high as 100,000 on each side. Germany had no way of supplying these 200,000 soldiers, let alone the citizens who were trapped in the middle of the divide, and merely wished to survive. The political need had also superseded Gustavus's military strategic requirements. These 100,000 men, in other words, couldn't be brought to bear at once, but were spread out across Germany. Partially as a means of securing the loyalty of other German princes, partially to fulfil the cycle of violence which would maintain pressure upon the emperor. Alas, after doing his utmost to cement his triumph, it was time Gustavus turned his full attention towards the emperor's servant. If Wallenstein could be defeated, nothing would stand in the way of Gustavus and his expanding vision for a Germany under Swedish control. Swedish triumph had brought Frederick V to Gustavus's side, but these triumphs forced Wallenstein to get back on his horse and fight for the emperor once again. The deal which Wallenstein made with the emperor in February 1632 had allowed for a period of service of only three months, an incredibly optimistic clause, because Wallenstein would have known he was the emperor's last chance. Yet Wallenstein also knew that he was not in good health, and that campaigning did nothing to improve his painful gout. He also wished to have some sort of option to exercise himself from the command, should he feel the need. By April, though, the emperor's subordinates were making no effort to disguise their belief that Wallenstein would be staying on indefinitely. In the meantime, Wallenstein had conducted an extensive correspondence, supposedly in secret, with John George of Saxony. Moved into opposition due to his emperor's rash instructions, John George almost certainly never wished to side with the Swedes in the first place. And he had become increasingly concerned at Gustavus's procession throughout Germany. Gustavus could detect this and left the Saxons alone in Bohemia while he moved down the Rhine and into Bavaria. He refused to take John George's men with him for the expected confrontation with Wallenstein, due in fairness to their very uninspiring past performance in battle and the fear that they might defect to Wallenstein at a critical moment. On the 16th of June 1632, Gustavus erected fortifications outside of Nuremberg, a Protestant city of special strategic importance as it linked together the Swedish bastion at Pomerania with the Saxon electorate. Gustavus could not allow it to fall and set 6,000 peasants to work in placing 300 cannon on the outskirts of the city. By the time Wallenstein arrived a month later on the 17th of July, Gustavus's position around Nuremberg was too formidable to challenge. Mindful of his predecessor's failings, Wallenstein determined not to confront Gustavus as Tilly had done at Verben on the River Elbe the previous summer, but instead Wallenstein prepared an armed camp of his own some 10 kilometres away. With a medieval hilltop castle, the Alta Vest, serving as the anchor of his fortified camp, Wallenstein looked to outdo Gustavus in industriousness, constructing a mammoth encampment which put all others to shame. By felling 13,000 trees and moving the equivalent of 21,000 modern truckloads of earth, Wallenstein created what was, in effect, 
a fortress 16 kilometres in circumference. But that was where the sophisticated tactics ended. For the next few weeks, as the heat of the summer intensified and terrified refugees streamed into Nuremberg in their thousands, a humanitarian disaster threatened. Conditions were nothing short of disgusting, as both camps produced tons of waste and food shortages combined with the prevalence of rats, flies and disease to produce a situation akin to a nightmare for the average soldier. By mid-August, with neither side budging and reinforcements en route to aid the 20,000 Swedes, Wallenstein received news that Saxony had invaded Silesia. The move had been conceived by John George to place additional pressure on the Emperor and wrest from him the peace treaty that the Saxon desired. To the two encamped adversaries, though, the Saxon invasion of Silesia had the effect of compelling them to act. Moving out of his base in the first week of September, Gustavus launched several doomed assaults against the Old Vest, which Wallenstein had been expecting once an outlying position had been loudly seized with the aid of the Swedish cavalry. The prospects for success were hopeless, and the weather seemed to agree with the drizzle soaking the wooden pathways and making any act of scrabbling along the slippery wood impossible. And we shouldn't underestimate just how damaging this whole campaign was, because by the time Gustavus pulled away from the Alta Vest, he had suffered some 30,000 casualties and possessed only 4,000 horses capable of carrying a man, a horrendous and strangely forgotten blight on the Swedish king's record. The experience must have been utterly debilitating for Gustavus's army. It was demoralising enough to compel 11,000 men to desert the Lion of the North. Had his roar been expended in that great triumph a year before? Certainly the anniversary of the Breitenfeld triumph on the 17th of September 1632 would have been passed in a sombre mood. The deflating experience of consolidation had proved almost more difficult for the Swedish king than his initial breakthrough. He would need another Breitenfeld if he stood any chance of rectifying the shortcomings of his campaigns in the season. In the meantime, he would winter in the hostile Swabian lands, where Bavarian peasants sharpened their cruel farming implements for a bitter winter of opposition. This grim picture was interrupted by some troubling but also exciting news. Wallenstein was marching to Saxony, where he intended to spend the winter. Whatever he had expected Wallenstein to do after the Alta Vest, perhaps he expected him to stay put in his reinforced vantage point, Wallenstein had defied Gustavus's expectations. He burned his enormous camp on the 21st of September and made north. After many months of correspondence, the diplomatic line between Wallenstein and Saxony had gone dead shortly before the encounter with Gustavus at the Alta Vest. Thereafter, it had become plain that John George of Saxony was determined to make himself a nuisance, and once his forces captured Silesia, even the Emperor was urging Wallenstein to march against Leipzig once again. Sure enough, the Saxon city was dutifully captured in Wallenstein's name on the 1st of November 1632, and John George, who at this point retreated to Torgau, made a point of executing the city's commander in a rage, adding insult to injury by forcing the late commander's widow to pay the cost of the court-martial. Nasty. On the 7th of November, Wallenstein was joined by his subordinate, Pappenheim, on the march to Leipzig, but the two men had no time to catch up. Incredibly, Wallenstein was informed, Gustavus Adolphus had marched a total of 650 kilometres in just 17 days in double-quick time. The advance had cost him the lives of 4,000 horses, 
but it did re-establish the element of surprise which Altevest had denied. Now it remained to capture Wallenstein in the net, and Gustavus gained on him over the following days until finally Wallenstein could run no more. With his 8,500 soldiers, 3,800 horse and 20 guns, Wallenstein fortified himself 20 kilometres short of Leipzig on the evening of the 15th of November. The town that he chose was called Lutzen and contained a smattering of elegant houses in the backdrop of several glittering rivers. It was a beautiful scene and these two commanders were about to utterly ruin it. Against Wallenstein's wishes, he would now be forced to fight the pitched battle which Gustavus so desperately craved and the Swedish king was right to be confident. He outnumbered the enemy with his 13,000 infantry, 6,200 horse and 20 guns. As the sun rose on the morning of the 16th of November 1632, fog filled the air and obscured the vision of those with even the best eyesight. But regardless, Gustavus insisted on pushing on. Another Breitenfeld surely awaited, and he would smash Wallenstein just as he had smashed Tilly 14 months before. It had taken far longer than he had wanted, but at long last, the battlefield showdown between the Lion of the North and the Servant of the Emperor was about to begin. And in the next episode, History Friends will be covering exactly that. So I hope you'll join me then. But until then, this has been When Diplomacy Fails. You have been a wonderful History Friend. Thanks so much for listening and supporting this show. And I'll be seeing you all soon. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com.